Shabbat Shalom, and Merry Messianus. <laughs> As it's been observed uh, several times to me this week, it's kind of funny because people were telling me as though I didn't know, uh, Christmas is really a Jewish holiday. The birth of the Messiah, what could be more Jewish than the, the long-awaited promised Messiah of Israel? Well, our Torah reading this Shabbat, is Shemot. It bears the same name as the book it introduces. Shemot, meaning names, because it begins with a recitation of Jacob's, the names of Jacob's 12 sons, who with their father and their families had settled in Egypt after being reunited with Joseph. The English name for the book Exodus is borrowed from Greek, and it means the way out. It reflects the real historical, monumental event of Israel leaving Egypt as a free people. <coughs> I'm all the more delighted to give some thoughts on the opening chapters of Exodus on this particular Shabbat, which happens to fall on Christmas Day, because we are looking at the two greatest redemptive events in the history of mankind the rescuing of our Jewish people from bondage in Egypt and the rescuing of mankind from bondage to sin and death. Moses accomplished the first, Messiah accomplished the last. The parallels are stunning. And it's really evidence of God's fingerprint on the whole thing, and I hope to address a few of those. That generation, including Joseph, all passed away. And for a time, not very long, we flourished in Egypt. But years later, a new king arose, unnamed, and for good reason, one who had no regard for the historical fact that had it not been for Joseph, all of Egypt would have perished. This pharaoh became paranoid at the increasing Jewish population, and he enslaved us thinking it would reduce our numbers, but the opposite happened. And that's where fear gave way to brutality, as it so often does, in the form of an attempt at genocide. Pharaoh, now in a panic, issues an infamous edict. All Israeli newborn boys are to be put to death, an atrocity which would be repeated about 1,400 years later and for much the same reasons by another wicked king named Herod. Pharaoh orders the Jewish midwives to carry out his plan. The midwives, however, courageously defy that order. Now consider that in a book and a parasha entitled Names, we aren't given the name of the king of Egypt but the names Shifra and Pua are remembered for all time in scripture with honor. What they did is called Pekuach Nefesh, rescuing human life. Kudos to all who even today put themselves in harm's way to do just that. Moses is born in this perilous situation, and soon his existence can no longer be concealed, so his mother sets him in a basket on the Nile, committing him into God's hands. Those are good hands. The basket floats, 
right into the presence of Pharaoh's daughter as she came down to bathe. And in a humorous twist, she unknowingly pays Moses' own mother to nurse him. (laughs) God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Once weaned, Moses is brought to the royal palace and raised there. Talk about flying under the enemy's radar. One of those marked out for death becomes one of the elite in Egypt. As an adult, Moses is grieved at the plight of his people. One day he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he strikes the Egyptian down and he dies. When Pharaoh learns of it, he wants to put Moses to death. And so Moses is forced to flee Egypt. He arrives in Midian, where he helps the daughters of Jethro, who's the priest there, and is given one of the daughters, Zipporah, as a wife. In complete contrast to his first 40 years as royalty, Moses' next 40 years are spent humbly shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law. I don't think there's anything more humbling than being in the employ of your father-in-law. But shepherding is a thankless and difficult task in a rugged environment. But all the while, our people continue to suffer terribly under Egypt's taskmasters. But God knew, and his man was now prepared. In chapter 3, Moses has Jethro's flock at Mount Horeb. The word Horeb uh, means dry or desolate. Doesn't sound very promising, yet This place, that location will from that time on be known as the mountain of God. Adonai appears to Moses in a bush, burning yet miraculously unharmed, and directs him to return to Egypt and deliver Israel. You ever wonder why a burning bush? God could have appeared in any of a number of ways. Perhaps perhaps God was showing Moses and us that he identifies with us in our suffering. And the Jewish people were presently suffering in that furnace of Egypt. In fact, in both Deuteronomy 4 and Jeremiah chapter 11, Egypt is called an iron furnace from which Adonai delivered us. To put it mildly, Moses is reluctant. (laughs) The entire second half of chapter 3 and the whole first half of chapter 4 are filled with what-ifs as Moses searches for some way out of this assignment. But God promises him that Israel will emerge, and the proof of it will be that altogether they are going to return to this very same mountain and worship. He also gave Moses signs to perform to authenticate his calling to the sons of Israel. Now amidst this exchange, Moses asks one more question. What if they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? And in that moment, God revealed himself by the ineffable name, the tetragrammaton, the yod Hey vav Hey, saying, I am who I am, so you, Moses, are to say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God forewarns Moses that Pharaoh will not comply, except under duress, and that through Pharaoh's stubbornness, God will pour out signs and wonders on Egypt, and the whole world will learn of it and come to acknowledge the God of Israel. 
God also promises that Israel will leave Egypt with great riches. Well, Moses is still hesitant. So God appoints his brother Aaron to be his spokesman. Moses informs his father-in-law, packs up his family, and begins the journey back to Egypt. But Moses' house is not in order. He hasn't circumcised his son according to the Abrahamic covenant. At a lodging place along the way, God sought to put Moses to death. That's what Moses tells us. Now, skeptics love to take pot shots at this passage. You know, what kind of God, they contend, would call Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and then try to kill him before he can even get there? It isn't hard to explain. Evidently, Moses became deathly ill at that lodging place, interpreting it to be God's just judgment against him for having neglected to keep covenant. Remember, Moses himself wrote this, so he is interpreting this as, I deserved it, God was judging me. Well, it's Sipporah, not Moses, who Moses was probably too debilitated in that moment. Sipporah circumcises their son, and apparently that was the issue, because Moses recovers and resumes the journey to Egypt. But it's likely at that point that Sipporah took the children and returned to her father. Later on, they'll be reunited because she was very upset about this whole circumcision thing. Events in Egypt unfold just as God promised. Moses assembles the elders, performs the signs. They believe him. They go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refuses to release them. In fact, the king is so angered at their request that he effectively doubles their workload. Their reaction? They blame Moses. And so our parasha ends at what appears initially to be abject failure. We're worse off than before. But God foretold it. And this will set the stage for the showdown. The demonstration of his cosmic power as he will unleash plagues on Egypt. And what do we learn of God through this parasha? We learn that he cares about the welfare of his people and that he keeps his promises. So let me give you just a few final thoughts. Israel's redeemer, Moses, had to flee from Egypt to escape a king who wanted to kill him. Israel's ultimate redeemer, Yeshua, with his family had to flee to Egypt to escape a king who wanted to kill him. In both cases, they returned once those who sought their lives were gone. And in both cases, God's purposes were accomplished. Moses was rejected at his first offer to help and treated with contempt. But later on, it was clear to all that he was God's chosen servant to set us free from Egypt. Messiah Yeshua, likewise, was rejected at his first offer and treated with contempt. But when he returns for the second time, the whole world will know that he is the chosen one of God, sent to set us eternally free. Finally, did you know that Yeshua referred to himself as I am when challenged by the religious leaders of his day? He is more than a carpenter. He's more than a good teacher. He's more than a prophet. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
This is the time to decide where your loyalties lie. At his second coming, it will be too late. May Adonai give everyone listening to this message the wisdom and the courage to make that commitment even today. Shabbat Shalom.